When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Hi, and thanks for listening to The Family Brain. I'm your host, Megan Gibson, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Meg Van Dusen, Dr. Meg Van Dusen is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in Seattle, Washington, and is also the author of Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addictions, and More. And I love talking to Dr. Meg about all the things she's seeing right now as we manage life during a pandemic. And What I really enjoy is she gives some very basic concrete tools to help get through some of these different challenges. And I hope you enjoy listening to what she offers. Thanks for listening. Hi, Meg. Thanks so much for joining me on The Family Brain today. Thanks for having me, Megan. I was just telling you, I was reading your book and it's exciting for me. One I love, it's called Stressed in the U.S. And what I love is it's accessible. It's very smart and is tons of information. But I find that sometimes when I grab books, it can be tough. Even I have a background in some of this, that sometimes it can be so dense that I just don't want to keep reading. So I like your writing style in that I think you do a nice job with adding different stories that kind of give examples and it it keeps things interesting. So good job. Good. Good. Thanks. (laughs) I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about what got you interested in the therapy field in general. What sort of led you into this path of sort of studying why people get stressed and how people manage stress and all of that? Well, what got me into the field to begin with, it was eons ago. Um, I actually was an English major in college. And so after college, I was trying to find my way in career and I was teaching English and I was doing a little bit of freelance writing. And then I was volunteering at a suicide hotline. And out of all of those three things, the suicide hotline experience was really the most, um, it impacted me the most in, in the sense that it felt like what I always was seeking was some way to really optimize understanding between people, to really 
be able to communicate um, with depth. And so I was looking to do that through language or through writing. But as I worked with people who um, were suicidal and who were really struggling, it just felt to me like the best way to actually reach people was through therapy. And so I went back to school and got my PhD in clinical psych and um, worked in many different settings, inpatient and outpatient, worked with kids, worked with adolescents, worked with adults, and eventually settled into private practice where I've been for 25 years or so. And um, what got me interested in the topic of stress, which I know is a huge topic, um, in my book, the subtitle is um, 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and more, because I'm looking at the various ways that stress manifests in our culture here in the United States. But what got me interested in it was just the fact that in my own life, in the lives of my friends, um, and of course, in the lives of my clients, it seemed as though anytime you ask somebody how they were doing, um, the response often was, I'm completely overwhelmed. I'm so stressed out. And in my private practice, while everybody comes in, you know, wanting help with whatever is going on with them personally, actually what people were coming into the therapy office with was beginning to change. Um, people were much lonelier. People were asking for help specifically with their addiction to their devices. People were worried about the world. They were terrified of mass shootings. Um, they were scared of losing their health care. So the focus began to change from just the personal, you know, what was happening in their relationship or at their place of work to really what was happening in um, our country. And that seemed to be connected both to events that had, had occurred, such as 9-11, or to cultural phenomenon that were changing the way we navigated life here in the US. And it was having a really negative impact on people. Mm -hmm. So everything I was interested in doing, whether I was working with anxiety or working with uh, people with sleep disorders or whatnot, really led me back to stress. Yeah and led me back to some of these cultural phenomenon that were um, influential in how that was manifesting with people. I love that. Well, and it's funny because I was reading it and thinking, I kind of want a cheat sheet. So I've been doing a lot of um, Zoom therapy with people, yeah. which I think is pretty common right now. Yeah. But I almost want like to write down from your book, like, okay, anxiety, try these things, you know, because sometimes oh, yeah. a lot of times you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know, you kind of forget that there are these different tools available to kind of get you off the, the gerbil wheel. But when you're on the gerbil wheel, it's hard to see it. And even as a therapist, sometimes it's hard to remember, oh yeah, there's this thing that I know to be useful, but it's just not in my head right now. So anyway, I might do that cheat sheet for therapists. Right, exactly. I mean, that's why I, I, I give tools because I, I just think people are um, begging for it right now. Mm -hmm. No, that makes Especially sense. during the pandemic. Yes, I know. Mm -hmm. I want to get to that. So um, funny thing, I became a therapist because my I worked in a law firm, which I saw in your book, your dad, I worked at a law firm in San Francisco. Oh, did I, you? It was intense. And I was like, I am not doing this. And um, I worked at a suicide prevention center. 
right after uh, that. And that's what got me interested in being a therapist. So Funny. interesting. Yeah. It really is. So if you don't want your child to be a therapist, don't, don't, I guess, <laughs> encourage them to work at a <laughs> Um, so what, I know you mentioned the pandemic, what I'm wondering if your study of stress and all of these things has helped like fortify you during these times. It really has. Or how, how has it? Um, you know, I think the book was timely. I wrote the book before the pandemic happened. Um, and so I have found that, you know, everything that I wrote about is applicable. So anxiety among my clients skyrocketed at the beginning of the pandemic. That was kind of the first thing that I saw the most. And so the chapter on anxiety, um, you know, really was useful in terms of helping people, remind people kind of how to handle that. The anxiety eventually moved into depression um, as people began to feel increasingly helpless and hopeless. And then, of course, people were really affected uh, in terms of isolation. And so the loneliness piece that I write about in the book also was really pertinent. Um, the tech piece was interesting because, you know, here we are in the pandemic and I write about technology primarily, not to give it 100% negative rap, because obviously we use it for a lot of positive things. But in the book, I talk about how technology is negatively affecting us. And here we were during the pandemic, so dependent on it, and it was actually being used to connect us. But nonetheless, that didn't mean that people weren't being adversely affected because actually many people, especially kids, as you know, were on it much, much more than usual. And so there was a lot of discussion, still is a lot of discussion around how to use it for the better good, how to set boundaries around it and how to understand how it's impacting you. Also, with regard to the loneliness, people assume that you know, we cure loneliness by being with each other, and that is not necessarily true. Um, really, the first line of defense in terms of addressing loneliness is to learn how to be with yourself. Uh, and so I think the pandemic, you know, if we have to look for uh, what we can get out of it, you know, one of the things is that we do have an opportunity um, as we're hopefully running around less to be with ourselves a, a lot. And I just really talk to people frequently about how to use that opportunity, um, whether it be formally through mindfulness meditation, whether it be learning how to tune into the way in which you speak to yourself, and understanding what self-compassion is and how to cultivate it, whether it be learning how to be self-encouraging um, when you're feeling helpless and hopeless, particularly, you know, with this fatigue that we're all feeling. So I think the book is extremely applicable, mm -hmm. even though it was written prior to the pandemic. Yes. No, I feel like there's so many good nuggets. And like I was saying before, sometimes it's easy to forget these tools and the science behind why you feel the way you do. And I think it's a lot easier to get to that compassion when you're reminded, oh yeah, this is, this is why this is happening. We're not defective. This is like the human functioning and we've got yeah. all these pressures on us. And, um, and yeah, I feel people like- People are that, hard on themselves. 
Yes. And I think that's where oftentimes people feel lonely and isolated is I'm the only one. Why can't I handle this? You know, and that's what I hope in this show to, to remind people we're all struggling, even the therapists, you know, like even just humans, we're struggling, yeah. you know, it's, we're up against some tough stuff. Um, Absolutely. And I think that by sharing those stories, it helps people feel more connected. What would be some of the, like in the midst of the pandemic and the, the subsequent circumstances around it, what have you found to be useful in terms of technology um, awareness, given that people maybe do need to be on it more just to keep their jobs or to keep education going? Or what have you found that there have been some good um, changes that people can make despite the increased sort of demand of being well, online? Well, I think that we, you know, we're already in a situation prior to the pandemic of having to regulate our relationship with technology. Um, You know, it's not going away. It's pervasive. It's one of the many things that we as human beings got excited about and created without really realizing the dark side Um, and then go, whoops, you know, I I liken it to smoking, for example, (laughs) which was very, very popular, you know, um, in the earlier part of the century. And then we recognized that it could kill us. Uh, and, you know, technology is much more silent than that. And it, it still has a very negative impact, as you know, particularly on kids and adolescents in that uh, it's no surprise that when the iPhone was invented, when Facebook came onto the scene, that was the time in which depression began to rise, um, suicidal ideation began to rise, particularly among our younger generations because they were becoming addicted to it. And technology, um, particularly the ring ping ding of the smartphone, first of all, it sets off the stress response. So it raises the predominant stress hormone in the body, which is cortisol, but it also triggers dopamine in the brain, which actually wants, uh, is an addictive, uh, it's a pleasure, you know, hormone that makes us want to go back for more and that Mm -hmm. becomes addictive. So we've always needed to just take it on ourselves and set our own boundaries. Nobody's going to do it for us. And I talk a lot with people about how to do that. And that hasn't changed since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. With kids who are now going to school online, which, you know, the majority of them, at least here in Washington state, everybody is, the you know, I think it's really important that parents understand that they didn't ask for this. Um, They're not choosing um, to be on devices 12 hours a day, but their social life is also happening on their devices because they can't get together uh, now either. And that's just a thing that we have to, as parents, I think, understand and adapt to. And I don't think we can necessarily apply the old rules that we may have had before the pandemic to what's happening now, given this really strange situation we're in. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It doesn't mean to let your kids run amok and just be on tech, you know, be on, move from their laptop to their smartphone, to their iPad, to whatever, you know, from morning till dusk. I still think the best way to deal with too much time on tech is actually to have some sort of arrangement with your kids 
around things that you expect them to do every day that are not tech related. So in my house, I have, you know, my older son is gone. He's in college, but my younger son is, is 16. And uh, while he has a lot more freedom with technology than say, you know, a 10 year old would, we still require that he get outside and get exercise every single day and that he spend time doing non tech related activities such as playing his guitar every single day he can choose but it's got to be non-tech related on a daily basis we try to draw him more to other non-tech activities rather than just saying no get off of it mm-hmm. getting into that type of war right yeah. with kids and and i think that that is you know important because when kids do get out and they're getting exercise or they're you know shooting hoop or something they kind of realize that they're having fun yeah. It's funny when you're talking about we can't use the same rules from the past to manage this. And that's just kind of one more stress, right? Having to deal with, okay, so I'm not just making parenting decisions, which is stressful anyway, right? Like what are the limits? But now everybody, I don't know if this happens with people you talk to in friendships or coworkers or whatever, but you know, people have different takes on it and so, and it, and they can ebb and flow. And, you know, so it's not like we all have this sort of um, consolidated idea of how, okay, let's approach it this way. We need to shift and we're all going to approach it this way. Everybody's kind of making all these new decisions and it can be very overwhelming. Although I feel like now that things have, I feel like people have found, I shouldn't say people, I have found my flow a little bit better. At the beginning, it was just completely overwhelming. And um, just because, like you said, every little decision is a whole new thing. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. Um, The thing that I emphasize a lot in my book, because I write the book from the perspective of attachment theory, which we can talk about at some point if, if you want to, but is really having compassion for our kids. And this is regardless of the pandemic, but around technology in general, we gave them the devices. We put them in their hands. They're highly addictive. And, you know, they're not being bad, quote unquote, um, just because they're on them constantly. And yet it's so stressful. Mm -hmm. And we know that the devices are not good for their brains now. You know, there's research on that now. And we know their devices are not good for their moods. So there's research on that as well. And so as parents, we tend to get stressed when we can't control it. And, you know, many times, and and I've done this too, you know, we can lose it, right, with them. And it's so important to have compassion, which is not condoning. Compassion does not mean uh, there aren't any boundaries. Um, It just means to understand that they're caught up in something that they did not create. Mm -hmm. No, I think that makes so much sense. And I've talked to my husband sometimes if one of my kids in particular is on for a long time, that transition to get off is very challenging. And I'm like, you got to remember, he was just in this world he created in charge, you know, and now he's got to come down and sit down and do what we're asking him to do. And that's a big shift to go from a world you made to a world where there's some expectations of you and things you have to do. And and like you said, we let him be on it for that long because then we didn't have to do anything, you know? I mean, when you oh, talk yeah. about the babysitting aspect, I'm like, oh, guilty. I mean, you know, do I want to play Uno for three hours? Probably not. So go do that for a little bit. And 
But I do, I think that's very wise to remember the part we play in it too. You know, like maybe we didn't create the devices, but I'm allowing these things to go on for extended periods of time. So I need to be a little bit accountable for then the behaviors that come yeah. afterwards. That, exactly. And, and to help them regulate their emotion mm-hmm. around that. And, and so much of it is role modeling too. Kids learn most by watching us. And it's just key that we as parents regulate our own tech use. We all have varying levels of addiction to our devices. They have become appendages. And it is just really key that we get conscious about that and that we have boundaries around ourselves, that we don't have the phones out all the time. You know, even if the phone is sitting in the room in visual distance, it's setting off cortisol in the body. There was a study on that of the University of Connecticut. It doesn't even have, you don't even have to be using it Mm -hmm. for it to be raising your stress level. And so it's important that we know that for ourselves because if we're more stressed, we're going to have more difficulty regulating our own emotion with regard to our child or teen who is on the device too long and we're more likely to snap. Um, it, It becomes hypocritical. And so if we're, if we're in the habit of, having devices gone every single meal time. And, and I make sure even at breakfast, which is a very casual affair and in our household, we might be eating at different times, we might not. I just make sure I never have my phone in the room because I just want to model that. And, and I also make it the rule that there have to be certain times of day or certain places that are device free. I love that. And I would like to get back to that. I feel like we were pretty good before and then we got our new rules and now we got to adjust those new rules too. You know, like we went a little too far. We were like, no expectations, like YOLO, you know, (laughs) we got to kind of rein it in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that um, you talk about in the book is um, this idea of attachment theory. And I would love for you to just talk a little bit about what that means and what you're seeing in your work? Well, attachment is the psychological bond that develops between two people. Um, I write in my book that we can also have psychological bonds with groups of people and with our nation. So we talk often about our country as the motherland, personifying the country as what's called an attachment figure, like a parent. Mm -hmm. We talk about the father of our nation. And so people develop either secure or insecure attachments. And there are a host of insecure attachments, different kinds of insecure attachments that you can develop, depending on the quality of the interaction that they originally had with their primary caretaker or caretakers, usually their parents, when they were infants and toddlers and throughout their lives. And so we really develop this insecure or secure attachment based on that period of time, but it doesn't mean that it's set in stone. So if you've got an anxious, preoccupied, insecure attachment, for example, as a result of having had a very needy parent um, who wanted you as a child to mirror her versus the other way around, then you, know, you might be able to heal that insecure attachment and 
actually develop more secure attachments with other people in your life. If you have, for example, a really good, healthy relationship with a spouse or with a therapist or with a best friend. So attachment is fluid and that's the good news about it. Um, you can also have a secure attachment and develop an insecure attachment if let's say you wind up in an abusive relationship. Uh, so the reason why attachment theory is so important and so key to stress is that the main system in the body that regulates stress, which is the hypothalamic pituitary axis, uh, it helps us you know, react when we need to distressors and it just helps us cope with stress, is present at birth. But the quality of this infant caregiver relationship, if it's attuned, for example, actually is going to affect the quality of the HPA axis. In other words, it's going to affect how that HPA axis develops in that infant's body, later adult, whether it's going to be able to regulate stress well or not. And so there are so many different directions I could go with this, but essentially one of the key components to developing secure attachment is the infant caregiver gaze. So that's when, you know, you're looking at your baby and unbeknownst to you, you're looking at your baby and your eyes are dilating, your pupils are dilating. The baby responds to that pupil dilation by smiling. So our brains are having an unconscious interaction with our baby's brain. And if we are attuned to our baby, if they look surprised, we look surprised, if they're smiling, we smile, if they coo, we coo. If, I don't mean just copying them, I mean attuned to them in comforting ways as well. That actually helps grow the baby's brain. Mm. It's, it's dependent on it. Mm -hmm. And it's dependent, you know, secure attachments are dependent on how attuned as caregivers we are. You know, I actually had a question about that in terms of like siblings. Is that often why a middle child might be a little, because you're distracted by the older, the older, like if you have kids that are close in age and then you have a new baby, I think about how much time I spent with my first child when I had one and then subsequent kids, it's hard to have that. Like, what, what do you say to people who like kind of, it's not always easy. It's not always easy. Parenting is one of the hardest things in the world. And I just, I write about this to give people tools, certainly not to make people feel guilty. Right. No, but I mean, sometimes um, explanation, know, I mean, like more like, I think, it you know, what I, middle kids kind of don't get as much sometimes. Um, yeah. I do think that middle kids can get overlooked, right? The syndrome is such that the oldest child, you know, uh, parents pour themselves into the oldest child because it's a, it's a novelty. They're, they're usually hyper vigilant, hyper aware of the first baby, and that baby gets a, a ton of attention. Sometimes the youngest child gets a ton of attention for different reasons, and the middle child can get more overlooked. I mean, I just really talk with parents a lot about, you know, special time, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And I know that people often say they don't have time. Mm -hmm. This is a big thing these days. Um, people oops, always feel like they're running out of time. And yet special time with each child doesn't have to be hours upon end. It could be 15 minutes, mm -hmm. 
15 minutes a day, but you have to set your mind to it. Otherwise you're going to get just caught up in where the demands are. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to where the demands are. If the baby's crying, that's where you're going to go. Um, and so it's got to be special time. That's not bumpable that you spend with each child and without the screen mm -hmm. is what I would say. And what it's, is this concept of the attachment with the nation and how would you say, I mean, this is getting into a whole nother, but with everything we've gone through with this election cycle, what have, what, what's your perspective on that with where we are with attachments and how divisive well, things have become? Yes, it's been quite a time and stress in the United States has gone up dramatically and incrementally every single year since Donald Trump was elected. That is just a fact. And people do not feel protected. Now, some of this happened before Trump was elected. You know, 9-11 occurred and no terrorist attack had ever occurred like that on our soil. And that disrupted a sense of security that we had in our nation. Anxiety went skyrocketing. Um, prescriptions for anti-anxiety medications went up after 9-11. People developed PTSD symptoms, even if they hadn't been in New York. And so, you know, global warming is another one, um, you know, have already been chipping away at our otherwise secure attachment to our nation. But I will say, and I'll just be blunt, um, Donald Trump was not a good attachment figure. Mm. Um, and he was very damaging to the nation's sense of security yeah. and uh, whichever side you're on. So I think we are at a place where our stress is at, and this is a fact, it's at an all time high. It's higher than it's ever been. The pandemic has put it off the charts really. And stress is influenced by so many different things that had to do with the way this administration has handled governing, the pandemic only being one of them. So I think that many people are experiencing an insecure attachment to our nation. And uh, time will tell in terms of how we're going to heal that. But what I, what I often tell people is that, you know, again, even if you have an insecure attachment, whether it's with you know, as a result of a traumatic childhood or a result of what's happening in our country, you can still work on developing secure attachment within the self. And there are numerous ways to do that. And that is a powerful thing because it will help you deal with external stresses more, deal with it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep thinking about it. I just, the, the idea, I think because I've been on zoom a lot, I have started using my hands just to make it more interesting. And so I think of it as like a tree, you know, and if, if you feel sort of secure in your, in your roots, you know, you're not as likely to blow over in the storm. However, there are moments when you're feeling pretty secure and the storm is just more than you were prepared for. You know, I mean, I feel like uh, absolutely pandemic knocked me down for a little bit, you know, just because I hadn't been in something, my, my root system wasn't prepared for it, you know? Uh, absolutely right. And there were so many things happening simultaneously, right? There was the, the election, which people stress about the election was, you know, in the 80th percentile or more. In, in other words, more than 80% of us were stressed about the election. 
on top of the pandemic, not to mention the, you know, understandable uproar about systemic racism, which has always been in our country. It's just that we have video now. And that was becoming simultaneously extremely stressful, particularly for Black people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have been dealing with a ton of stress. And you're right, no matter how resilient you might be, I'm sure that all of us have found us ourselves on our lips at some point in the last 10 months. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I was reading in your book when you talk about um, creating boundaries with um, texting and how much access you allow to yourself through the technology. And I had one circumstance that really pushed me to have to figure this out because the boundaries I was setting in terms of, please don't text me political information. I don't want that. We're not really being listened to. And sort of what you're talking about with the attachment, if I had sat and spoken to this person in in person, you know, I would have probably had a better exchange. But these texts, I explained to her, it felt like a, a dump truck being dumped at the top of my driveway. And then the truck drives away and just leaves it in my yard. And so I think that some of the limited ability to interact in person during all of this stuff has caused so many problems too, because things just get so hyped up on texting, on social media, where you can just post and then walk away and not have to look someone in the eyes, not have to see how it makes them feel. But I love that concept of setting boundaries. And it's not always easy. I mean, it's, it can be very challenging to follow through, really. You know, it, it- well, you, yeah, we have to. You're absolutely right. First of all, about, about all of that. So that's why cyberbullying um, became as pervasive as it is, is because, and there have been studies on this, um, people are less likely to bully other people if they are looking them in the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when you don't have to see somebody, it's a lot easier to make up stories in your head about that other person and particularly negative stories and to project all kinds of things on them because you're not actually interacting with them Mm. and it's dangerous. Um, But I do think what we have to do, so all of that stuff was happening before the pandemic. In some ways, the pandemic, I think, helped many people use their devices for more face-to-face interaction like we're doing now with Zoom or people FaceTiming with each other that wouldn't ordinarily do that because they were longing for that kind of visual connection with others. So that's been a good thing because so many of us have become used to, you know, the the mode of communication that doesn't entail a live voice uh, and a live exchange. And it almost has made people nervous about actually calling somebody on the phone. It's, it's why so many people let um, phone calls go to voicemail. They don't want to have to deal with it, whatever that means. So I just really say we have to push ourselves a little bit. If you feel like texting somebody something, um, why not stop and instead pick up and call? Yeah. And I think the excuse a lot of people have is I don't have time. Well, what I say to that is we might as well take the time mm-hmm. because we are going to run out of time in so many different ways. If we only communicate via text or via social media, we are going to become so estranged and so lonely and loneliness is more hazardous to our health than smoking. People die of it. So I say, take the time, live longer mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually make the phone call. Yeah. 
I love that. Well, and it feels like when you say I don't have time, I feel like often I don't have time to text because they're not getting what I'm saying. It's not, it, there's always some sort of like, oh, that's not what I meant. But if you were talking, it, you probably would have figured it out a lot faster, you know? So sometimes it seems well, faster to me. Well, and the thing is, you know, and this is true for the younger generations particularly, is that people are really losing empathy. And and that is in the research as well. And And the reason being is that you can erase your mistakes in text message. You can um, post and, and doctor your photos in social media. Uh, so there isn't this organic back and forth where I stumble on my words and I'm looking for the right word, or I put my foot in my mouth and I become a little bit embarrassed. And you might say, oh, that's okay. And we have this kind of exchange that actually builds trust and connection and empathy and relationship. We don't have that with texting and with social media because people are polishing it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My kids joke about, like, are you an influencer? Like they, 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 I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's like, did you just get influenced? Like, but it's really, it's yeah. a joke, but it's real. I mean, it's just like, it's, you know, kind yeah. of, so I am wondering if there's anything else that you were hoping I'd ask you about or that you would be able to talk about that I haven't asked. You know, as we're talking about technology, I think the important thing, and I talk, it's actually tool number one in my book, um, is I cannot underestimate or underemphasize the importance of eye contact. We've lost touch with that because of technology in large part. I, you know, my son and I were sitting around the other day looking at old photos and I had snapped one a couple of years ago when my family was taking a flight somewhere and I'd snapped a photo of us sitting in the waiting area and my husband and my son and my other son were all looking at their phones. And I said to my son, look at that. And he said, yeah, but look at around, look at around us. Mm. Everybody yeah. in the background was on their phone. Mm-hmm. Nobody was looking at each other. This is our world and this is our world and we've become so used to it. We don't even notice it. It's the norm. That's mm-hmm. just what we do. Um, we feel far too busy. And frankly, we don't, we're uncomfortable now with eye contact, but eye contact, I'm going to remind you in attachment theory is uh, affects our neurons and it, it's what helps develop the brain it still affects our neurons because of neuroplasticity. We've learned that the brain doesn't just stop growing. The brain continues to grow throughout our life, even beyond the year 25 that people think that the brain stops growing. No, we can still change our brain. This is in the science in meditation. This is in the science in uh, compassion. And so we have to understand that when we develop secure attachment through eye contact, we're helping ourselves increase oxytocin, which has an inverse relationship with cortisol. It's the pro-social hormone in a way. And when oxytocin goes up, we're less likely to feel stressed. It also helps us develop trust with each other. It helps us develop compassion and empathy with each other. These are all things that, if you look at the research, have been falling by the wayside and are really frightening, frankly. Uh, and we look at the divisiveness in our country right now, there's really lacking mm-hmm. a lot of compassion, right? A lot of understanding of each other. And so, you know, it's really important that we take the time 
to look our spouse in the eye, to look our children in the eye, to not just say, hey, you know, have a great day at school, or uh, hey, can you empty the dishwasher? Yeah. Um, but actually take the time to, you know, look your child and say, I would love it if you could empty the dishwasher. Yeah. They're more likely to do it. Yeah. I was just thinking, I think I look at my dog's eyes more than any of the humans in my family, which uh, is just yeah. kind of interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think it's true. So yeah. I got to take that practice and move it to some of the humans. Yeah, yeah. And it does help build secure attachment, okay. which helps us become more resilient to stress. Yes. I love that. Well, and I love the fact that it's it's what what was the word you used? Um it's adaptable or it, it can continue to happen. What was the word that you used? I forget. Um that it's not static. Uh, it's something that can change over time. Yeah, it's fluid, right. Fluid, okay. That it's not like, oh, too bad, you lost your chance. You know, because mm-hmm. that's how I think I can feel sometimes when I think back to my kids being little and feeling frazzled and wondering, did I look them in the eye enough? Like, you know, maybe one got more, just that there's still time. There's still time to notice and to make adjustments. And to me, that is good, the good news, you know, that it's not like you lost your opportunity. Super important point, and it brings up again that we don't want parents beating themselves up. Um, Guilt helps us a little bit. It points us in the direction of understanding that we've made an error, but we don't want to get stuck in guilt. And the thing around attachment theory that's really key for people to know is that the power of repair, if you have yelled at your child to get off the damn screen, (laughs) um, you can go back and repair that. You can go back and say, I'm really sorry I yelled at you about that and looked them in the eye. And that, the power of that is equally as potent as having done it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, uh, take some comfort, I guess, in knowing that this is not about trying to be perfect parents. This is about how to be attuned as possible, yeah. um, even when we make mistakes. Yeah. I love that. It's funny because I'm doing this book study right now that's about forgiveness. And I was sitting with this group of people and everybody, one of the questions was, what did you grow up with in terms of like the, the message about forgiveness and the modeling about forgiveness? And sometimes they're not the same, right? And then, and everybody had these different things. And there were these moments for each person sharing what they grew up with. Like, you you carry that forward, but it again, it's fluid. You don't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay the person that holds a grudge or because your parent did, but it's really interesting to look back. And I think that helps with the self-compassion too. Like, well, no wonder that's a struggle for me. That's what I learned. And now I'm trying to learn this other thing. Um, Absolutely. That's right. Holding a grudge, by the way, increases cortisol in the body. Yes, it seems like a lot of work. I I don't I feel like that's it's a lot of work. I can't it's a lot I don't of work have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the last question I ask my guests is what is one of your favorite self-care activities that you do for yourself to sort of keep yourself feeling strong? I exercise daily and I meditate daily. Um during the pandemic, I have really taken advantage more of the outdoors. And I talk about nature in the book because nature also decreases cortisol. And you don't have to be living in uh, some beautiful natural environment. It's just sitting on my porch sometimes and looking up at the sky uh, helps me to, you know, regain a sense of self, um, reconnect with what's important. 
or we feel less alone when we look at trees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I try to do that because I'm inside, you know, working with clients all day. Um, I try to, even if I can take five minutes to go outside and uh, just watch a bird. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. I've loved our conversation and I love your book. And so it's, tell me, I know it's stressed in the U.S. And then what's the subtitle? 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. Awesome. Um, And then where can people find more about you if they want to learn more about your practice and your book? Probably the best place to go is my professional website, which is megvandusen.com. That's D-E-U-S-E-N, megvandusen.com. And there's information there about me and about my book. And also there's a link to uh, my blog, which is called Sight on Stress. Oh, cool. I'll have to check that out. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. If you'd like to learn more about The Family Brain Podcast, you can check us out online, familybrainpodcast.com, or on Instagram, Family Brain Podcast, or on Facebook, Family Brain Podcast. Also, I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Texas, and I'm currently doing teletherapy. You can check out more about my clinical practice online at megangibson.com, and it's Gibson, G-I-P-S-O-N, P as in podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.